Welcome to Uplifting Conversations. I'm your host, Toussaint Bailey, founder and CEO of Uplifting Capital. Today's conversation is with Jordan Moss, founder of Catalyst Housing Group. Thank you for having me. The word that I keep coming back to is uplifting. I have this conviction based on my lived experience that uplifting people or the planet doesn't have to be draining. It can actually feel uplifting to the person who's making that impact. I'm your host, Toussaint Bailey, founder and CEO of Uplifting Capital. Today's conversation is with Jordan Moss, founder of Catalyst Housing Group. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Oh, oh man, so good to be here. Uh, good to be with a friend friend here. Uh, so uh, Uplifting Capital would not exist without Jordan. He's been so instrumental as a friend, supporter, uh, cheerleader, advocate for everything that we're doing. And so I am deeply appreciative to actually be able to spend some time, welcome him, give him his flowers uh, uh, here uh, real time in the office. Uh, so Jordan, so good to have you, man. Thank you so much. Those are kind words. You're gonna make me blush on. on <laughs> yeah. It's okay. Blushing's okay. <laughs> uh, so I wanna. This isn't about uplifting. Actually, it's it's about uh, you. Um, so starting with Catalyst, but but really kind of going into your journey there, and and everything that brought you from wherever you were um, when that seed uh, was planted in your brain to to what Catalyst has become. Um, so why don't you start though by kind of explaining a little bit about what Catalyst is and, and what change uh, you hope to see through Catalyst. Absolutely. Um, so thanks again for having me. Great to meet everybody in your audience here. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so Catalyst is pretty squarely positioned in the affordable housing industry. Um, we really got our start, which was back in 2015, focused on what I would call more traditional capital A affordable housing, leveraging tax credits, private activity bonds, a lot of the other complicated stuff that makes housing non-scalable in much of this country, which is why we have the crisis we have, one of the reasons why we have the housing crisis that we have. Um, so we got our start down a more traditional path. We pretty quickly came to the conclusion that that traditional model was not for us. It just wasn't scalable, uh, wasn't impactful enough. And we were noticing uh, this entire cohort of people, essential workers for the most part, nurses, teachers, first responders, civil servants, who earn traditionally in excess of typical affordable housing income limits, uh, yet not enough to live directly within the communities they serve. And we thought that that was an area that we could really tackle, that we could take on. I spent a couple of years really solo, um, just digging into uh, the California constitution and municipal finance and property tax exemptions, really looking to uh, find pathways to providing housing for that cohort at scale. And that's really what we focus on today. So uh, fast forward to today, uh, we've done a couple billion dollars of transactions over the past couple of years. Wow. Uh, we really have created a new vertical, I would say, uh, in the housing space in California. We call it essential housing. We like to distinguish between traditional affordable housing, which unfortunately at times has some negative connotations. We wanted to make it clear that we were uh, addressing a different cohort of people, that middle income essential workforce that I described. Um, and today, uh, we've really created, we've, we've fostered the development of what we look at as open source financing infrastructure mm. that is now being leveraged by governmental entities throughout the state. And there's been 14,000 units of formerly market rate housing that are now perpetually income and rent restricted to middle income households 
where all of the upside accrues to the underlying jurisdiction. So it's uh, it's been pretty impactful in a short period of time. No, that's that's incredible. And, and I know there's all sorts of folks in, in Los Angeles and San Francisco or here in Marin who are jumping up and down going like, I know that salary looks good to exactly. some, some places across the country. I know it might look good on paper. That does not translate to affordability in, in the locale where, where I am. That's exactly right. I mean, we're recording here in the heart of Marin County. And just to use this as an example, if you look at the AMIs, the area median incomes of people in this county, they're remarkably high. They're some of the highest in the country. And most affordable housing, the rents are determined as a percentage of that area median income. And so being here, having grown up here, having gone to the public schools here, having kids in the public schools here today, I was really looking at the early salaries of public school teachers in Marin County. And that math looks the same as it looks from a salary perspective in a lot of the rest of the state of the rest of the country, where that might be in the forty to $50,000 range. But if you look at the cost of even a subsidized one bedroom in Marin County, that rent would consume about two thirds of that teacher's salary, their gross salary, take home pay, right? Uh, sorry, gross salary before the take home pay, before taxes. Um, and that's just obviously unsustainable, not to mention the fact that those subsidized units don't even exist in the first place. So it was pretty clear that somebody had to do something about that. Absolutely. Yeah, because then you push those teachers outside of the county. Obviously, from, from a quality of life perspective, that means something. But even from an environmental perspective and from, from all sorts of other secondary ills that start to happen when you take people outside of the communities where they work to live. Right? That's exactly right. I mean, I think Luckily, there's a lot of focus on the housing crisis in this state today and in this region, but usually it's just the housing that people are focused on. But you're touching on something that we talk about all the time, which is the second order effects of not being able to provide the housing. And so you just touched on one of the biggest. Two of the largest super commuting regions in the country are here in California, mm. Bay Area, LA region. And the main re primary reason for that is because you have this whole workforce of you know essential workers who earn in this middle income band who can't afford to live within the communities they serve. So they hop in the car every day, they drive until they qualify, can find a place to rent, and everybody's banging up the roads, traffic, congestion, pollution. There's a direct correlation between the amount of time you spend in the car every day and mental health issues. You know, the academic performance of the children of these people is not, I mean, it, it goes on and on and on. And so we just have to find ways to put people directly within the communities that they serve. No, that makes a ton of sense and, and that's important work. So, so I know um, that you have spent time prior to being in this essential housing space um, in all sorts of, of kind of real estate positions. It's, so walk through that. Um, and then more importantly, what what was the cause of that shift? And I, I like to talk about not skipping the hard stuff. So yeah. what was what was the space that you were in when you thought I'm going to leave these really, really, really good jobs or this really, really, really good job and, and launch something that many people probably think is a cockamamie idea yeah, <laughs> until yeah. it works. At best, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, to start, I guess, at the beginning of the career. So yes, I've spent over 20 years now pretty squarely in this institutional multifamily space. So everything that touches, you know, uh, uh, multifamily, uh, institutional multifamily assets, primarily in the Western US. I've been on the principal side of the business, the brokerage side of the business, been involved in buying them, selling them, financing them, building them, kind of everything around that. But that's really been as boring as that may sound. That's the world that I've, <laughs> that I've lived in. Um, so uh, 2014, uh, I'm at CBRE, which one of the, it's one of the largest um, in, uh, commercial real estate services firms in, in, in the world. 
uh, I'm in the Bay Area, I'm running the, the Bay Area multifamily group, so we're doing investment sales, we're doing a lot of work for developers. Um, and you know, I should pause and say, uh, I've noticed an epidemic in this state of founder stories basically being bullshit. And, <laughs> and I have noticed that uh, once a founder has found product market fit, their origin story uh, seems genius. It seems uh, uh, very targeted and very mission driven, right? Uh, uh, yes. But I think if we had a digital catalog of founder stories before and after finding product market fit, uh, those, those would be a little different, right? Um, and and I, I put your founder story aside because the whole story no offense. is the nope. story, is the story. Um, <laughs> yes. and there's proof to that. But, but generally, I just want to be real about the fact that 2015, um, I had been working in brokerage and there were probably three things driving me. I wanted to get back to the principal side of the business and so I, I saw an opportunity to do that and I wanted to make that leap. I generally had the viewpoint uh, that the housing crisis in California and beyond was going to get worse, not better, and that more people needed to jump in and, and kind of look for solutions, right? And that fresh eyes, new ideas, that could all be a good thing. Yep. Um, and then um, additionally, you know, I just felt that the traditional methods of creating, producing affordable housing were just non-scalable, were backwards in many ways. There's all kinds of perverse incentives, misaligned interests, and I just kind of thought with creative capital, with fresh eyes, that maybe some things could be done differently. But that was about it. I didn't know exactly what I was gonna do, right? It, yeah. was, it was that complicated. You weren't or, struck by lightning? <laughs> I was not struck by lightning. housing model? No. <laughs> I could paint you a very different picture of that origin story that sounds you know, genius, but at the time, that was not the case. Well, thank um, you for keeping it real. Of, always, <laughs> always, you know that. Yep. Um, and I would say that that first year, it looked a lot like your uh, Just Listen project, right? It was traveling around the state, around the country, trying to sit down with anybody that would talk to me who knew anything about affordable housing, just trying to learn everything that I could about the space and try to figure out where to point my energy, my enthusiasm, right, my entrepreneurial nature. Um, and it was after that that I sort of came to the conclusion that, that was the, there was this space to go tackle. Um, so that was really the impetus. I could tell you to fast forward to today, having found product market fit, having grown a real business around this where we've scaled up, we have people across the country, um, got some exciting things going on across the company. Um, we've really been able to crystallize our vision, our mission, uh, why we get out of, the bed, out of bed every day, what gets us excited. And it's really all about addressing wealth gaps. And realistically, those are racial wealth gaps in this country. And realistically, those have been created on the back of housing policy in this country and in many, many ways where inequities have compounded over decades and led us to where we are today, where the average net worth of a white household is 20 times that of a black and brown household, right? And a lot of that all is rooted in who has been able to participate in the housing space and who has not. And so we view housing as being the problem in many ways but that housing can also be the solution. Mm. And without getting into the weeds at what is kind of a sensitive time for us because we're hopefully on the verge of rolling out kind of the next iteration of what it is that we do, it's really all about finding pathways to take institutional ownership and operation of housing and to put all of that economic upside directly into the hands of the people who have been locked out of this trade over many decades, and that's what gets us excited. I love that. One of my favorite authors, uh, Daniel Pink, in Power of Regret, 
talks about uh, fulfillment as this flip side of regret. Like so, so this kind of this lighter side on the flip side of the darker side. So if you look at somebody's deepest, darkest regrets, you can find their 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 I greatest like sources of yeah. fulfillment. I love housing as the problem, but also as the solution to this massive racial wealth gap. That's right. Yeah, no, that that's super powerful. So I know you're you you talked about some stuff that's even pre-beta. Um, so I won't dig into that, but can you touch a little bit about uh, on some of the other pillars of Catalyst? Because I know housing is is but one piece of this. What I think of as kind of this tripart um, yeah. solution. Well, there's there's really I would say from an entity standpoint, there's three entities that make up Catalyst, and they're all interwoven, and it's all I think fairly well thought through. So. There's the for-profit. Oh, side you think of our it's business. fairly fairly well thought through at this point, with, <laughs> with the hindsight, with the hindsight, you know. Um, but you know, the first is um, Catalyst Housing Group is a for-profit entity. We just finally became a B Corp, which is great. So you know, it's one thing to tell people you are a mission-driven organization or to participate in a space that's generally, hopefully, a mission-driven space. It's another thing to go through the two years in our case. I know that you're in the queue it's, as well. It so is in our future, yes. You can speak to uh, how long it takes to become a B Corp and how much of a lift uh, that that can be. But um, we finally have that certification, which is great, because it's really a stamp of approval to the outside world that we truly are a mission-driven organization. We think about the ways that our company impacts our people, the environment, all of those things. Right? Yeah, and it's a commitment to hold yourself accountable against. Right? That's right. So, yeah, you get scored. To- <laughs> Every three years, you're on. You know, you continue to measure yourself. You have to keep your your registration, all of those things. So that's great. And and honestly, from a cultural standpoint, it wasn't a heavy lift for us because that's already how we were building the business. But it's still great to get the stamp of approval um, to not just say, "Hey, we're a mission-driven group of people." Um, I would think about Catalyst Housing Group as really being uh, a fee-based uh, opco, basically an operating platform that drives affordability at the asset level. And there's a whole bunch of interesting and innovative things that are going on within the organization. If you look at the the size of our company, which is not huge today, we have 13 people across the country. Um, We've hired some pretty amazing people uh, with some backgrounds that look a little different than you would maybe traditionally hire in a fairly early stage real estate company. We have people focused on, on technology and innovation and automation and centralization and all sorts of things that we think are crucial if we're truly going to build a scalable asset management business with fewer people but best practices and leveraging all sorts of current technology and innovation and to do the same thing at the asset level. Um, The labor issues that we have in this country have definitely found their way to the operation of multifamily assets Mm -hmm. and if you're going to be able to attract people, retain people, but properly run and manage multifamily communities, you're really gonna have to bet on automation and centralization and all of these best practices. So that's a big part of the Catalyst Housing Group. Um, We have the Catalyst Impact Fund, which is our nonprofit arm. And so the future, a lot of the future of our company, we think will um, be developed under the nonprofit arm. And this comes back to some of the special sauce that we don't wanna fully get into today, given that you've got millions of viewers here uh, tuning in. (laughs) Millions! (laughs) Tens of millions. but uh, but there's some really interesting things about being a nonprofit in the affordable housing space, getting at tax exempt uh, financing, getting at property tax exemptions, things like that, that really allow you to build a pretty scalable propco um, on the other side of that opco, mm-hmm. um, where you've got this symbiotic relationship for profit, nonprofit, propco, opco structure, which we think is pretty interesting. And then the third piece is called the Catalyst Innovation Lab, uh, which is our innovation arm. It's a wholly owned subsidiary of Catalyst Housing Group, but we're just in the process of launching our first venture fund. Um, so 
you know some of the background here, but we've been, I've been kind of casually angel investing, advising early stage technology companies that do something in the real estate space for over a decade. Uh, we've decided to really formalize that. Uh, we did not wake up and say, you know what the world really needs is another prop tech fund, because um, <laughs> there's quite a few of them out there. Um, it's kind of a weird thing. On one hand, it's still really early innings, like real estate is still a really crusty industry that hasn't been you know, overwhelmingly impacted by technology. On the other hand, you know, it can feel overheated at times where so many people are, are now allocating, even traditional venture investors, right? Yeah, no, I, and I find the same thing with, with impact investing. It's really hard to uh, have the confidence that you have something additive to the space and not get scared by the noise, right? right. Not go like, ah, there's so many people rushing to the space that like, I don't want to be that dude. Right. Uh, therefore, I'm going to stay away from the space. I think, but yeah, so you obviously have something additive. Especially when big names, household names say, you know, oh, we have an impact arm and whatever it is, when re the reality is, you know, that was done to for a press release, right? When there's really nothing there. And, yeah. you know, it's a good thing that you jumped in and you're actually doing something tangible. Yeah, or they're um, just doing something different, right? Like, right. Or, or they're just solutioning uh, uh, with something completely different from what we do. So, yeah. So we see an opportunity there. Um, it's it's fairly specific. We're going to work with and invest in uh, pretty early stage technology companies, seed and Series A companies. We're just going out now to raise a fund that's going to be in the fifty to hundred million dollar range. Uh, we secured a co investment from some you know really well known folks in the real estate space that are very additive in various ways. So it's exciting. We brought somebody on board uh, that's going to sit on top of that vehicle full time. Who's got a real background in venture investing and private equity, which which I don't. Mine's been a little bit more casual. But we've actually, and kind of accidentally, grown an interesting brand in the space where there's plenty of companies that have come to us that want to have us on their cap table. They realize that we add a lot of value, specifically in the multifamily sector, in helping them think through product market fit, through pricing, introductions with various large owners of real estate, um, how to roll their product out. The sales cycle in real estate is oftentimes long and different than what people are used to in like software sales or whatever it may be. Um, how to get pilots with those companies, how to integrate at the property management software level. So uh, we see some interesting opportunities and I would say those are the three pillars and it all comes back to this investment impact innovation where all of these things are, are interwoven to really create the impact that we want to. I love that. So I, I would love, so, so this is a, a little bit uh, kind of taking you afield, but I know you won't talk about this unless I ask you. I would love for you to talk about um, how Darius has made his way into the organization yeah. and how, what that has to do with your philanthropic passions. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I know that when you tell your story, a lot of it comes back to the murder of George Floyd, pressing pause, thinking through, you know, what that means for you today, what that means for you tomorrow, how you want to spend your time and your life. I think a lot of us were doing the same thing, Agreed, right? Agreed, yeah. And I was very fearful, um, especially as a, a white man, very fearful of, you know, the casual, like, posting something on LinkedIn, you know, I'm supportive, Black Lives Matter. I mean, sure, yes, all of those things. But, um, I thought it was the time to think of something far more scalable and impactful, tangible, something that could be done that would just um, uh, uh, stand the test of time and not be sort of a moment in time, right, that passes and then people get back to their regular life and forget that that happened or whatever it may be. Um, so for me, um, you know this, others may not know this, but um, so I was a basketball player. I was lucky enough to play basketball at UC Davis. Um, Darius, who you asked about, this is Darius Livingston. He works at Catalyst. He's an analyst today. He went to UC Davis. He was a football player there. Uh, the way that I met Darius was uh, post-George Floyd's murder. 
I reached out to UC Davis um, and asked about creating a program there specifically for black student athletes at the university to introduce them to the world of commercial real estate and to connect the dots on uh, somebody else that you've gotten to know on Cedric Bobo from Project Destin. Uh, Project Destin is, is an amazing organization and that's the business that they're in is introducing underrepresented youth to the world of commercial real estate, educating them, helping them learn the terminology, helping them think like an owner, providing pathways into the industry, demystifying the industry, even turning on the light bulb that this is an industry, right? And that, yeah. that even though you may not see people that look like you within this industry today, we can change that, right? I would have had no idea. That's right. I would have had no idea. That's right. I mean, I tell the story sometimes, but um, my wife, when we met and we started dating um, and I told her what I did, I could see the light bulb go on and it was like, you know, I guess I should have realized that like every one of these buildings I drive by, like sure, somebody owns it, somebody operates it, somebody developed it, somebody financed it, but like I just, you know, it never dawned on me. Like yeah. my parents didn't grow up in that industry, I didn't really know. And you take it a step further, um, a lot of athletes that have like this burning competitive nature, which is why they, you know, became successful athletes in the first place, a lot of those skills are like perfectly if you steer them towards real estate, like there's a lot of those things that overlap, right, that could lead to a successful career in real estate. Um, so it was kind of a perfect fit. I reached out to the university. I said I wanted to do something tangible, create this program for black student athletes at the university in conjunction with Project Destin, kind of bring all this stuff together, which is my go-to, you've now learned, just <laughs> connecting the dots on uh, the network, uh, uh, right? Yep. You, you guys should meet. Um, and it worked. So uh, we've now endowed this program perpetually at UC Davis. So there is a team catalyst that participates in these uh, virtual uh, academic contests that are hosted through Project Destin. They, they compete against other schools across the country. This was the first time ever that Project Destin had a team solely of student athletes, and they definitely brought a different level of competitive fire to the table. Um, there was some smack talking and stuff some that you don't end usually dances see. At the end of that <laughs> That's pitch. Right. Yeah. You don't usually see that in, in an academic format, uh, which made it really fun. I would say, I mean, I think our team who, who served as um, kind of advocates and as uh, mentors to the team, our team definitely got as much out of it as they did. It was an amazing bonding experience for us. Darius was on our very first class that we had uh, they, you know, they rounded, they went and rounded up different athletes from different teams around campus. We were lucky enough to meet Darius. It was clear he was just like a superstar from day one. And so fast forward, we run the program, it goes well, our team competes like really well against other teams. And this was a crash course on real estate. They didn't know any of this stuff, right? They picked so it up really cool. quickly. Uh, Darius graduates, we hire him. He's been with us for a year now. Um, and we've got some other pretty amazing things in the works around this partnership with Project Destin and other plans to really expand this nationally, so it's it's been amazing. I'm excited excited to see. So so you don't you don't set out to do all of this stuff. So you don't take off into essential housing or do what you're doing at, at Davis without some hope that you can affect at least some of the change that you're hoping to affect. What gives you hope that we can get better? I don't know that I've thought about it in that way. I guess I would say. Um, I don't know how you keep going if you don't have that hope, right? Mm -hmm. You have to have that hope. Um, and and I, I would also say like, you know, we're seeing, I'm generally a pretty optimistic person and believe that if I really put, you know, all of my resources and and, um, and everything towards, towards a, a specific problem that there has to be an answer to it. Um, and we've seen already in a few years like really tangible results of the work that we're doing. So I think you have to have that hope. I love it. If somebody is, 
like just at the edge of their kind of comfort zone, contemplating doing something about the housing crisis. And it could be financial advisors who are watching, investors, or just everyday people. What is some sort of, you know, call these micro acts of courage? What's something that they could do today um, to, to impact this problem? Um, well, I wish I had an easy and succinct answer to that question. I know Doesn't we've, have got, to be. we've got limited time here. Um, I would tell you one of the reasons we have the level of crisis that we have is because there aren't easy answers. There's a lot of government involvement in housing. Um, I think you know the term NIMBY has become known now by most people. This was kind of a housing specific thing, but people now generally recognize what this is across the Bay Area, California and beyond where you have all kinds of ways for people who generally you know have already benefited financially from housing, you know, not wanting to let, allow others in, into, the, into the game. Um, and it's really hard to unwind a lot of that, that policy. Um, I would also say for people who really want to understand the housing crisis, um, it's important to understand that there are multiple housing crises, right, operating within the crisis. I mean, homelessness, for example, is a much different issue than the traditional capital A affordable housing world, which is generally people who earn less than 60% of median income, which is different than this middle income demographic that we've been addressing with this belief that we won't have fully functioning communities on a long-term basis if we can't house our essential workforce. Mm -hmm. Each of them is very different. Um, some of them are actually investable and some of them are not if you take the homeless issue, which a lot of which is rooted in mental health issues, substance abuse issues, um, this is really an area where government needs to step in, right? I wish I could tell you that I had a genius idea around pathways to do well and do good and solve homelessness, but there is no economic model around that. Right. Um, so it's a complicated issue. I mean, it's going to take a lot of people operating in very specific sectors of the housing industry. Um, I would generally say that my hope is that as we continue to view housing as a basic human need and not as an alternative asset class, you know, as you grew up in the investment management world, right? Yeah. Real estate and, and specifically housing is just viewed as a great alternative investment, right? Where there's it's done really well over time, it's really stable. Get you some income. That's right. Yep. It generates income, you know operates more like a bond, but has all of this upside, has all these tax benefits. Like that's how we've come to think about real estate. But when you see through that and you think about the actual ownership of housing, the people who live there, who depend upon that housing to have a roof over their head, right? And then you think about some of the investment strategies that we have celebrated. You know, someone who is a value add investor and is the best at that they have built their business on the back of buying something broken, putting a bunch of capital in, which can be great, especially if you're fixing systems and all those things. But generally that comes with displacing everybody who lived there, yeah. jacking up the rents to a new price point that no one who was there before can afford, which oftentimes is this essential workforce that we're talking about, yep. and backfilling with a new segment of people, which leads to all those old people hitting the highways like we were talking about before. Um, I don't know that that's a great thing. And if you just watch the money flow in the space, you know, where you have pension funds, for example, who on one hand have a duty to manage capital 
so that they can provide capital for people's pensions, but the capital finds its way through to really aggressive value-add strategies that are displacing the same people that they're there to help, um, your head starts to explode. Yeah, purchasing power of that, <laughs> those pension dollars <laughs> That's are right. diluted by the strategy that created. A little them. bit, a yeah. little bit. So it's, it's complicated. Um, we think that we'll continue to find pathways to delivering, you know, really operating at this intersection of of innovation and impact, you know, that I that I talked about before. Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question though. No, you did, and, and I like that. There's not an easy answer, and I like that you answer it in a way that makes clear to pensions that mission line investing is essential, right? So yeah, mission aligned investing pensions got to think about. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, I I deeply appreciate you, man, sharing the time, sharing the wisdom. Uh, last question uh, that I try to ask everyone when I remember is, what does uplifting mean to you? Um, I think what it means to me is, first of all, finding something that you're passionate about. Because if you're not passionate about the work, it can be hard, right? Um, there's twists and turns. There's dead ends. Um, you really have to have a passion behind your work, I think, to really stick with it. Um, and then ultimately, I think what it means to me is having that passion, taking all of your resources, all of your relationships, and combining those in a way uh, that truly allows you know, to uplift others in a meaningful way. And when I think about that for us, on one hand, we have the residents at our assets or hopefully future residents that we will house, right, as we continue to scale. And then it's our people at Catalyst, our catalysts as we call them, right? Mm. And providing pathways for them to have real financial security, a great career, uh, continuing to invest in them and their career development, personal development, um, and really providing that opportunity to do well and do good simultaneously. Love it. It's powerful. Yeah. All right, man. Appreciate you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wrap. Good. <laughs> Please be sure to subscribe, like, and click the notification button so you never miss an episode.